Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. Here's what it says. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Hmm. Today, we are going to share some scriptures which may stir some questions in your mind, your heart, your spirit. But be patient with us because our goal, we have a goal, is to try to illuminate these passages as we move through the message. Let's pray. Father, we love you so very much. And today, we honor all the special ladies in our lives. We pray that you'd give us words of life and encouragement to share with them. We pray that you'd give us actions to take that would help them to know how much we love and appreciate them. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. We thank you that we sense your presence in this place in a special way today. And God, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. Prepare our hearts. God, even as we hear what you've laid on Jessica in my heart, we pray that you prepare each heart here to receive what you want to say to each individual. Bless the word. Bless the rest of our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Today, we celebrate our moms. We're celebrating our moms today because moms are most definitely worth celebrating. Think about all the things they do. Think about all the noses wiped. Think about all the diapers changed. Think about all the foods they put on the table in front of their children. Think about all the driving here and there and everywhere as they get older. Think about all the heartaches and headaches your kids give you and they have to put up with. <laughs> Think about, you know, one thing my kids used to do that I really didn't enjoy, they would come up and say, here, mommy, and I would hold out my hand and they would put a booger in my hand. <laughs> Think about all the boogers you had to hold in your hand because you didn't know what your child was giving you. That's disgusting. But one of the greatest calls we receive as parents and as Christians is to be a discipler of Christ, a follower of Jesus, and to help those under our influence, like our children, our friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, to help them to know how to follow Christ. In the scripture we just read, Jesus is giving the disciples instructions on how to live a life devoted to following Christ. He tells them that in order to find true life, they must lose their lives for Christ's sake. What does that mean? That sounds pretty intense. How do we lose our life for the sake of Christ? When Jesus tells us to lose our lives for his sake, losing our life is demonstrated when we become selfless. Let me just start with an easy example that many of you can probably relate to. As I observe my mom growing up, and she's right here. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Wave so everybody knows who my pretty mom is. Isn't she beautiful? She's beautiful inside, too. 
But as I was a child growing up and I observed my mom, I saw a woman who pushed her own needs aside to take care of her children. There was not and is not a selfish bone in her body. She was all about caring for others. Now, you could see this in some of the, the small things that she would do. For instance, if you have a loaf of bread, what are the last two pieces left? The heel. My mom said the heel was her favorite part. You say, how could that be true? Well, I think it can be true because... She, it was her favorite because she found pleasure in putting others first. And then when it came to fried chicken, my mama can make some fried chicken, let me tell you. And it was a staple in our home growing up. One time they gave a squirrel and tried to tell us it was chicken, but we didn't fall for it. But anyway, when it came to fried chicken, she ended up with the wings. Now, wait a second. You think the, wing, the wings are good? They didn't used to be. Back in the day, the wings were the least favorite part of the chicken. Anybody remember that? Yeah. So she would say the wings were her favorite part. And then she also would say she liked the neck. Yeah. The neck of the chicken? Gross. How could that possibly be true? It was true because she found pleasure in putting others first. She did it in some bigger things, too. She, she put us first. She, uh, my dad would give her money for her birthday or her anniversary, and it would make him so mad because she would take the children out shopping and buy us new things and say, you guys need new clothes more than I do. And um, she, when it was time for college, when it's time for me to go to college, our family had a lot of kids but not a lot of money. The lot of kids was probably the reason for not a lot of money. <laughs> but my mom made sure that I had the finances needed to receive my education, even when it was a hardship. She was always sacrificing to benefit her children. My mom modeled and models a life of selflessness. She puts her needs behind those of her family. She is a picture of how Christ teaches us to live. So when we, as Christians, surrender our wants, our desires, our thoughts and words and actions to Christ, that's when we become selfless. When we surrender the demands of this life to a higher purpose, that is when we gain a greater spiritual awareness of how we should live. And when we translate that into being a Christ follower, It sounds something like this. We cannot value our life in this world more than we value Jesus and the life in the next world. Being a disciple means laying down your life for him. Being a disciple means living a selfless life devoted to the cause of Christ. One of my roles here at Calvary is the director of missions, and through my involvement in the missions program, I have met some of the most remarkable men and women who have devoted their lives to being disciples of Jesus, Christ followers, purveyors of the gospel all over the world. Some of them have been called to comfortable places, while others have been called to places that are a lot less than comfortable, even to the point that their lives are in danger because of their faith. Talk about people who inspire and challenge you to live better. These people challenge me. They should challenge us 
to live selflessly. Holda Buntain is a woman I have admired for many years because of her devotion and determination to serving God and serving others. We have supported her ministry from the beginning of our mission program, which my mother-in-law started back in the mid-80s. In 2010, 29 of us from Calvary took a missions trip to Calcutta, India. We had the privilege of serving, seeing firsthand, and participating in the ministries that God birthed in this godly woman. Let me back up a bit and tell you her story. But before I do, I I want you to understand that even almost 10 years since we've been there, that reading this story brought back the most vivid images of of the sights, the sounds, and the smells that we experienced in Calcutta. It is so overwhelming, the need is so overwhelming in this city that it hits you in the face the moment you arrive. As a young girl, Holda spent five years in Japan where her parents were missionaries. When the family returned to the West, to home in in Canada, Holda decided that she preferred life in the West. And as a teenager, she vowed never to return to life overseas. But life has a way of throwing curveballs. Holda met and fell in love with Mark Buntain, a Christian evangelist who happened to be head over heels crazy in love with helping anyone, anywhere in need. She was little surprised then when Mark jumped at a one-year opportunity to lead church services in Calcutta, India. They sold their car, packed their clothes, swaddled their newborn daughter, and boarded a ship bound for Calcutta. The year was 1954. I wasn't even born yet. I can't say that very often anymore. Uh, Three months at sea landed them in a city unlike any they had seen. Most shocking were the thousands of families devoid of work, shelter, proper food, and hygiene. Elderly men lay nearly naked on the raw concrete. Parents sat on the streets weak from months of hunger. And there were, no, there were children who needed medical attention, yet parents had no means to obtain it. It seemed in Calcutta, you either lived well or you barely stayed alive. Mark and Hulda spent those 365 days learning the needs and desires of the poor in Calcutta. They needed food. They needed education and medical assistance. They needed someone to give. They begged for someone to care. The year ended and the Buntains couldn't bring themselves to leave. A wild idea had worked its way deep into their hearts and they knew they had to do more, much more, for the poor of Calcutta. Calcutta became home. Mark and Holda wasted no time beginning a series of ambitious projects for the poor in 1964. The Buntains opened their first school for 200 children. A year later, they began a feeding program starting with free school lunches of milk and flatbread. They were concerned for the sick and injured, so they built a small clinic by a <clears throat> followed by a multi-specialty hospital and an outpatient facility. In 1989, tragedy struck. Holda was en route to America for a fundraising campaign when she received the news that Mark 
had suddenly passed away in Calcutta from a cranial hemorrhage. Hulda grieved the loss of her husband, and the city grieved with her. Then came the overwhelming question of what would become of their work. Hulda's good friend in Calcutta, Mother Teresa, affirmed what Hulda could not deny. I will miss Mark very much. We worked well together. You must carry on the good work. We must continue loving the poor. Hulda chose to remain in Calcutta. She chose to stay because she was head over heels crazy in love with the city. Hulda celebrated 60 years in Calcutta in 2014, and at 93 years of age, she continues to feed, educate, and medically assist the poor of the city. Under her leadership, the projects have grown to include over 100 primary and secondary schools, Bible and vocational schools, children's homes, a daily feeding program for 10,000 people, we were able to be a part of that, rural clinics, and a 173-bed hospital serving 100,000 patients each year and providing 40% of them with free care. Holda Buntane has painted a beautiful picture of what it means to surrender your life for the cause of Christ. She is a true disciple who has devoted her life to discipling others. She's a living portrait of laying down your life for the sake of Jesus. So today we're talking about the cost of discipleship. And Holda paid a high price to pursue God's calling on her life. She gave up the comforts of living in the West. She ministered to people in one of the most highly populated and impoverished cities in the world. She lost her husband, and she continued the work without her ministry partner. And when I look at Holda's life, I think, wow, that is some, those are some huge sacrifices. And then I wonder, what does Jesus say about the cost of discipleship? In Luke chapter 14, verses 26 to 27, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So maybe you're thinking, did she just say to hate your family? This is the weirdest Mother's Day message of all time. <laughs> but... I'm asking you to hang in there because it's all going to make sense in just a moment. But first, it's story time. We're going all the way back to 1992. Are you excited? So in 1992, I was about to start kindergarten. And a new girl joined my daycare class and I introduced myself to her. And we immediately decided that we were going to be best friends. And I was so excited that I was going to start kindergarten with my new best friend. When school started, our friendship quickly became complicated. See, I wanted to be friends with everyone. And as the weeks went on, I made a lot of new friends. My daycare friend was still my best friend, but I enjoyed playing with the other kids too. We had become friends because I had marched up to her, introduced myself, and declared that we would be friends. But apparently, the other kids weren't quite so easy to befriend. Many times throughout that school year, I would be playing with other kids, and my best friend would run up to the group and say, I need to talk to Jessica. 
in private. <laughs> and then she would glare at the other kids until they ran away. And she would say, why are you playing with them? I thought we were best friends. And I would say, we are best friends, but that doesn't mean I can't play with the other kids too. And we had the same argument over and over and over again until eventually she told me that we were no longer best friends. And girl fights can be difficult, but with this girl fight, I was just relieved because this person wasn't going to be chasing people away from me anymore. Let me tell you something. Jesus is not like my kindergarten best friend. Jesus is not a tyrant demanding that he be your only friend. He does not want to chase off all of your important relationships. This passage is not about exclusivity. It is a warning against idolizing other relationships over your relationship with Christ. I've been reading through the Bible in One Year 2019 plan on the Bible app, and along with each day's reading is a devotional by Nikki Gumbel. And you know you have a good devotional when the writer doesn't just skip over the difficult passages. In the devotional for this verse about hating your family, Gumbel writes, the word for hate in this passage is a Semitic idiom. In other words, it was common with the people in that culture, a common phrase like we say, raining cats and dogs. It's not actually raining cats and dogs. So the word hate here doesn't actually mean hate. It means love less. It is a relative term, meaning not to honor or privilege something above something else. In other words, Jesus must be the number one priority in your life above even your family and your own life. So Jesus is not saying, love me only. He is saying, love me first. Why does Jesus ask us to love him first? He does this because when Jesus is first, everything else falls into proper order. Let's talk about a well-known Bible story about making Jesus your first priority. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he, to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all of the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. If you've been around the Christian faith for a while, then you have heard this story about Mary and Martha. Jesus drops in on these two sisters as he is traveling through the country with his 12 disciples. The sisters agree to host him, and Martha immediately gets to work. She has 13 unexpected dinner guests, and there is no super Walmart down the street. She doesn't have a refrigerator stocked with food and beverages. She is going to have to walk to the market, buy enough fresh food for at least 15 people, food so fresh that the animals for the meat will likely need to be killed and butchered, and then she will prepare the meal without the convenience of electricity. So this is easily a full day's work. Meanwhile, her sister Mary, who also agreed to host Jesus and his disciples, sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to him teach. She soaks in his presence. She wants to hear everything he has to say. She is mesmerized by his words. At some point, Martha decides she has had it. She thinks to herself, 
we are hosting these guests in our home. As women, our job is to make sure that the men have a pleasant meal. And my lazy, presumptuous sister has not only imposed on the men by remaining with them to hear the teacher, but she has imposed on me by not helping me with the meal. So Martha marches into Jesus and says what sisters have been saying for ages. Tell my sister that she is out of line. She doesn't know her place. She shouldn't be in here with you. She should be helping me in the kitchen. And I will say that I have said these exact words to my parents about my sisters. (laughs) But I was not allowed to preach just to my sisters today. So we're going to move on to something else. (laughs) Jesus' response is amazing. He basically says, Martha, you are worried about providing an elaborate meal that will last for one night. I am here to save your soul for all eternity. Mary has chosen what is better. For Martha, nothing could be more important than her role as a woman with guests in her home. But when Mary saw Jesus, she realized that an incredible presence had entered her life. Her desire to be near him and to learn from him pushed all other thoughts and responsibilities completely out of her mind. In Jesus' presence, the rest of the world faded away. Now, this does not mean that we should be seeking spiritual experiences to the exclusion of all of our other responsibilities. We tend to think of our priorities as an unchanging ranking of the things that matter most to us. For example, God is number one, my spouse is number two, my kids are number three, and so on. And then we allot time and attention to each thing on the list in accordance with its ranking. But the problem with this way of thinking is that God does not want to be the top thing on your to-do list. He doesn't want you to check him off the list for the day and then move on without him. He wants to write the to-do list. He wants you to submit to him, to seek his guidance in everything. He wants you to go to him every day and say, God, who needs my time and attention today? Who have you called me to serve today? How can I honor you today? And as you keep your eyes on Jesus, he will bring each thing to your attention in due time. Some days he will say, you need to invest time in your marriage. And other days he will say to you, your oldest child really needs to connect with you and you need to spend time with them. You might go through a season where he says, your parents spent so many years caring for you and now it is time for you to care for them. He may bring you to a season where you invest in a ministry or where you go above and beyond and work overtime at your job to get something done. For everything, there is a season. Just as the earth's position in relation to the sun determines our earthly seasons, let your submission to Christ determine your season of life. Make Christ the sun, that is S-U-N, of your personal universe. Revolve around him and let him determine what season it is. Every season comes with its own unique duties and responsibilities. So don't waste your time mowing your grass in the winter and shoveling your driveway in the summer. Pay attention to the work that is appropriate to the season in which he has placed you. Martha had her seasons mixed up. She thought she was in a season for meal preparations and hostess duties, but it was actually a season for learning from the greatest teacher of all time. As I prepared for this message, I came across a devotion that put the interactions between Mary, Martha, and Jesus into a new light. Let's look at the change we see in Martha the second time Jesus comes to town. 
Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus has just died. First century Jews mourned close family members by staying home for seven days and allowing friends and neighbors to care for them. Mary and Martha were halfway through this seven-day period, so they would have had many people in their home either preparing meals for them or just sitting in silence and grief with them. All of the conversation would have been about Lazarus, his good qualities, how he would be missed, his kind actions. And as Lazarus' closest relatives, all of this conversation would have been directed at Mary and Martha. But in the midst of her grieving, Martha hears someone say, Jesus just entered town. According to the morning practices, Martha should have remained in her home and allowed Jesus to come express his condolences. But she doesn't do that. She runs and meets him in the street. Unlike the last time he was in town, she forgets all of the cultural norms and expectations. She isn't worried about the mourners in her home. She needs to talk to Jesus. And their conversation is really interesting. You can tell that she believes he can do anything, but she isn't really sure what she should be asking for. So to paraphrase, the conversation goes something like this. Martha says, Jesus, if you had come a few days ago, you could have healed my brother. But I know that God can do whatever you ask, regardless of the timing. And Jesus replies, your brother will live again. And Martha kind of goes back on her original statement, and she says, well, yes. I know that he will rise in the last days with all of the faithful that have gone before. See, she's not quite sure that she should be asking for her brother to return from the dead right this second. Jesus says, I am more powerful than death. When it comes to believers, I get the final word. Do you believe this? And Martha makes a bold proclamation. I believe that you are the Messiah, God's son. Martha decides to forget about the season that she thinks she is in, and she asks Jesus to change it. She is no longer bound by her cultural duties or her understanding of the possible versus the impossible. She thinks to herself, the last time Jesus was here, I thought I was in a season for working, but I was actually in a season for learning. Today, I think I'm in a season for grieving, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the Messiah has other plans for me. In her season of grief, she breaks protocol and runs to Jesus. What a change. Just as Martha's encounter with Christ impacted her response to him later, we need to have daily encounters with him through his word, through preaching and teaching, and through prayer and communion. We need to regularly invite him to shape us into Christ followers. We need to understand that discipleship can be uncomfortable. It's not in line, uh, many, many times, it's not in line with our earthly way of thinking. Let's look at the book of John, chapter 11, verses 38 through 44. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, 
Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out on his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Whoa, there's a lot happening here in this passage. But what I want to bring out is how it demonstrates that discipleship is a process. It is a shedding of your old skin and the freshness of new growth. Jessica just pointed out how Martha's response to Jesus' arrival was different this time. She focused her thoughts on him. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were in close relationship with Jesus. They had sat under his teaching, yet in the moment that Jesus initially told them to roll the stone away, Martha took her focus off of what Jesus could do, making the seemingly impossible possible. She shifted her thoughts back to this world, back to earthly thoughts, earthly way of thinking. Martha became uncomfortable. She was thinking about the stench that would come from a body four days in the grave. Some say she was concerned about her brother's body being shown publicly and being made a spectacle. Some say she was concerned that Jesus would be offended by the stench. And some say her words demonstrated distrust and disbelief. She knew that if they were exposed to the smell and came in proximity to a dead body, that they would prolong the process of being ceremonially unclean and be required to remain outside of the city for a longer time. These are perfectly normal, natural thoughts when we don't have the hope of Christ living in us. But when we become disciples of Christ, our way of thinking changes. We become kingdom thinkers. It happens gradually. It's a deepening of our understanding of who Jesus is and how he can be incorporated into every part of who we are. As we move towards Christ, our life becomes richer, fuller, and more purposeful. Your, our focus changes from self and from concern of what others may think to seeing the world through the eyes of God. This causes us to be more compassionate, to have greater faith, and to move forward confidently in every situation because we are not depending on our own wisdom and strength. Instead, we are allowing God to be in control. We remember God's word, we hear his voice, and we are led by the Holy Spirit. Discipleship is all about putting God at the front of everything in our lives. So maybe you're thinking, I don't really have an opportunity to get uncomfortable for Jesus. I'm not really called to a foreign mission field or to do anything crazy, um, like have somebody roll the stone away from a grave. So how can I be discipled if I don't have any chances to step out of my comfort zone? Where do I start? Start with small acts of obedience. Matthew 10, 42, 
And if anyone gives even a cold cup of water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. When you are obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, even the smallest acts are acknowledged by God. When we show our willingness to be faithful in the small things, we begin to open the door for God to use us to do more. To my knowledge, God has never instantaneously gifted anyone with the knowledge and skill set required to be a great surgeon. No one has ever prayed, God, please make me a great heart surgeon so that I can save lives, and then awakened the next morning without any medical training, knowing how to perform open heart surgery. And if they did, I don't think they would have a willing patient. Um, People who are great at what they do started by taking small steps towards a greater goal. So every doctor started as a high school student who applied themselves well enough to get into college. Then they went to college and took the correct course of study and received the grades required to be accepted into medical school. Then they had to take examinations to prove that they could do a good job in medical school. And if all of the pieces fell into place, they were accepted to medical school, and during that season, they were disciplined and faithful in their studies. They worked, they studied, they sacrificed time with their families and friends, and they dedicated substantial sums of money towards their education. And after years of study, they were finally deemed capable of practicing medicine. And this all started with the decision to get a good grade in a high school science class. Doctors are disciples of medicine, but that doesn't happen overnight. You might be thinking, I don't have anything to offer. What great thing could I possibly do for Christ? And you might be right. Maybe you can't do something great for Christ right now, but you can do something for him. Some small act of obedience that signifies your willingness to submit to the cost of discipleship. You are capable of going to work every day with a smile on your face and encouraging words on your lips. You are capable of lifting someone up in prayer every day. You are capable of sending a text message to someone who is struggling that says, how are you doing? What can I do to help? You are capable of inviting the neighbor kids to the play zone or to VBS. You are capable of countless small acts of obedience. To quote an ancient Chinese philosopher, The journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. You're capable of one step. So take that step. Great things are coming. In fact, the greatest celebration of all time is coming. When God finally fully establishes his kingdom here on earth, he's going to throw a massive party for everyone who truly believes in him. We've been invited to feast with God himself, and if we are not obedient now, we will miss his invitation. Luke 14, verses 16 through 23, Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. 
Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Jesus' original meaning in this parable is that the Jewish religious leaders had the opportunity to feast with him, the Messiah, while he was on earth, but they rejected him, they made excuses, and they missed the invitation. And when those Jewish religious leaders rejected Jesus, he went to fill God's house with those who weren't originally invited, the poor, uneducated Jews and the Gentiles. But I don't think that this parable is just about first century Jews and Gentiles. This parable applies to us today, to those who have every opportunity to know Christ and to those who have almost no opportunity to know Christ. Some people who grew up in America, who were raised in Christian homes, who went to church camps and youth groups and Christian schools, who were reminded of the love and sacrifice of Christ on a daily basis, will miss the opportunity to enter the kingdom of heaven. They will make excuses. They will get too busy. They will reject the gospel message because it is uncomfortable for them to call sin out for what it is. And when the day of the feast comes, they will be too wrapped up in themselves to go to the party. People who seemed destined to partake in God's kingdom will miss the invitation and God is going to fill their seats with some very unexpected guests. When some of those original invitees reject the invitation, God is going to fill his house with people who grew up in Muslim or communist countries, who were abused, who were addicted, and who stumbled across the gospel message right as they hit rock bottom. People who have no earthly reason to believe in the God of the Bible will receive this invitation and they will recognize its value. They will drop everything and jump at the invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I know that in this room today, we have both types of people. We have the expected guests, those who grew up in church and accepted Christ from a young age. And we have the unexpected guests, those who traveled a hard road and accepted Christ in very unlikely circumstances. And you're all invited. Everyone is invited. But you don't get to choose when the invitation comes. We can't put off entering the kingdom of heaven like the invited guests in the parable. They had so many excuses. I can't come today. I just bought land. I just bought oxen. I just got married. In other words, I don't want to prioritize anything over what I have going on today. I have too much going on in my life to accept this invitation right now. I don't have time to be a true disciple. We cling so tightly to the here and now that we lose sight of eternity. Ultimately, discipleship means living every day with eternity in mind. So don't get so wrapped up in today that you miss out on God's beautiful tomorrow. So why did your mom or son or daughter or friend invite you to come to church with them today? Because they want you to experience God's beautiful tomorrow. Because they care about you. They want to share with you the best decision they have ever made. We have taught our children that there is one decision in life that matters more than any other. The most important decision in life is what you're going to do with Jesus. Think about it. This is the most single important decision in life for all of us.
it will determine where you spend eternity. Every one of us will spend eternity in heaven or hell. And there is only one way to heaven and the promise of eternal life, which will be far beyond anything we can even dream, far beyond our biggest dreams. The path to heaven is through believing in Jesus, through believing that he is the Son of God and that he paid the price for our sins by dying on the cross. Life in him is full of promise and purpose and fullness. How can you experience this? How can you find it? By simply confessing that you're a sinner, believing in him, and inviting him to be a part of your life every single day. Would you please bow your heads? It is God's desire to know each and every one of us personally. And the only way that that can happen is if we give him the invitation. The only way that can take place is if we recognize that we need him. We need to confess our sins, turn from them, and believe that Jesus Christ loved us so much that he gave his life to cover and erase every one of our mistakes. If you're here today and you don't have that kind of relationship with Jesus, I just want to invite you at this moment, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I just want to invite you to raise your hand so that we can pray for you and help you discover this life that we've been talking about all through our message today. Is there anyone here that would like to give your heart to Christ? Just slip up your hand quickly and then you can put it down. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Anyone else? Would you all repeat this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the magnificent gift of Jesus Christ. I confess I'm a sinner and I need your saving grace. Please forgive me. I believe Jesus is my Savior. And I want to live for him who died for me. In Jesus' name, amen. We've talked a lot today about being a disciple of Christ. And as Christians, this needs to be something that we are really dedicated to, devoted to. If we want to experience all that he, he has done for us and all that he has in store for us, then we need to lay down our lives for him. It is a daily process, a continuing work. It's a constant examination of who we are versus who Christ wants us to be. His plans for us far exceed anything we can think or imagine, and it all comes down 
to daily surrendering ourselves to him. There's a beautiful song that we used a couple of years ago during our mission celebration that carries the message of being a disciple of Christ. Today, I just want to invite all of you to prayerfully listen to the words of this song and to sincerely invite God to speak to your hearts as you hear these words and ask him what he wants to say to you today. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? As you consider the sacrifice Christ made for us, I hope your heart is drawn to him. I hope you are moved by the depth of love it took to make that sacrifice. I hope that your heart's desire is to walk with him daily and to be surrendered to whatever he asks you to do. I hope you truly want to be his disciple. I'm going to ask our prayer teams to come down. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come and allow someone to pray with you. But if you call yourself a Christian, you should be in a daily process of seeking God to deepen your relationship with him. That to the point that you become more and more aware of his presence. Not just when you're praying, not just when you're worshiping, but it just begins to become a part of who you are. As pastor was sharing his message last Sunday, I could feel God moving and working inside of me. And I welcomed that because I want more. I just want to receive more. I want to be more like him. I want to know him better. I want people to see him in me. That should be our cry as we call ourselves followers of Christ. So now, what I would like for you to do, whether you just made the most important decision in your life to follow him, or whether you just want to deepen your commitment, you want to invite him just to move inside of you in new ways every day. Or if you have a need in your life and you just need the body of Christ to stand with you and to take that need to God in prayer, this is your time. As Tatum comes and sings this song again, please let God speak to your heart. Let him move inside of you and don't don't suppress that moving. Let that moving move you to do what he's calling you to do. In Jesus' name. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you for celebrating with us today. Go in the name of the Lord.